Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. I hope everyone is staying safe during this time. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you will be happy to know that I've partnered with the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society to create the RJOS podcast. I interviewed eight amazing surgeons and we are releasing episodes every Wednesday, so check it out. On this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast, we have a great interview with Dr. Melissa Erickson. Dr. Erickson is a spine surgeon at Duke University who is also in the final steps of earning her Master's of Business Administration. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Erickson, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Melissa Erickson. Dr. Melissa Erickson, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your vacation to talk with us. So thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So first question, in your own words, can you describe your background, where you went to medical school, residency, and your uh, post-fellowship years? Sure. I went to medical school at Rush University in Chicago. I was actually born and raised in Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. And in case you didn't know, Chicago is actually uh, also known in my heart as the best city ever. Mm -hmm. Um, I ended up coming down south to Duke for my residency. And then I trekked back up to the Midwest to Mayo Clinic for my fellowship. Uh, after fellowship, I actually did a couple of years in private practice oh, in nice. Virginia mm-hmm. and then was recruited to come back on staff at Duke six years ago. I would love to hear kind of your story of how you first became interested in orthopedics. Sure. Um I went into medical school thinking that for sure I was going to become a pediatrician. I uh, uh, So much so that I actually, when I started doing my clinicals, I set up surgery just to get it over with and get it out of the way. And then I could just move on with my life and be uh, a pediatrician. And it made sense because I had kids, Mm -hmm. I enjoyed working with kids, etc. And what I found was that that general surgery rotation, I loved it. I loved being in the operating room, mm-hmm. um, but I kept an open mind because that was such a big switch from general pediatrics. Uh, and every day I would come home from a rotation and my husband would ask me like, well, what do you think? And the answer was always, I mean, I guess I could see myself doing this. Um, and then I, um, I played soccer in various leagues throughout med school whenever I had like a free weekend Mm -hmm. or free time. And sure enough, after playing for like 16 years, uh, I was playing in some indoor league and ended up tearing my ACL. Oh no. And that was my first introduction to an orthopedic surgeon. And he was asking me like, well, you know, what are you going to end up doing? And when I told him, you know, I'm kind of really torn. I think I want to do general surgery. Uh, he was like, uh, why are you not considering orthopedics? And I was like, well, you know, I didn't come in like knowing right away. I haven't done research. And he was like, uh, don't let that stop you. Mm -hmm. Like you need to like start shadowing someone. He's like, I think it would be a really good fit just even based on like our brief interactions in clinic. Uh, so sure enough, during time that I probably should have been taking a break between third and fourth year, I contacted the orthopedic surgeons at Rush and I was like, hey, do you mind if I just come shadow? Mm-hmm. And that first day back, I was just blown away. And I came home and my husband was like, so how was it? And like he probably knew before I did because right. I was like, 
all those tools we have in the garage, like they were using the same <laughs> tools. They were just sterile. And he was like, I've never seen you get this excited about anything in med school. Aww. And I was like, it was amazing. Yeah. And so sure enough, it was a scramble completely changed around my fourth year uh, and never looked back. But it was awesome. Nice. And then you decided to do spine surgery during your residency. And so I'd love to hear what made you want to do spine surgery. Sure. Um, similar to med school, I kept an open mind. Um, and I think that what you'll remember from med school and residency is that oftentimes the experiences you have on a rotation and with the mentors that you work with have a big influence in your choices. Mm -hmm. And so I started to lean towards trauma and spine. Those were, uh, I really enjoyed the people that I worked with on those rotations. Um, and what I started to process through was that um, I could probably be a general orthopedist and enjoy doing a little bit of everything and taking care of orthopedic problems in general. And that way I'd be able to go into a small community. Uh, I'd have a lot of options. But the one thing that would be excluded was spine. Mm. And I think that nowadays with medical legal um and also just the nature of spine surgery, that it isn't something that you just want to casually do a little bit of spine surgery on right. the side. Whereas if I did spine surgery, I could probably still take trauma call. Mm -hmm. And so I did my homework and started talking to people who had either done two fellowships or they had done some of the few fellowships where spine instrumentation for thoracolumbar fractures is still integrated to their trauma fellowships. And even when I talked to people, they said, you know, I did train in it, but I really don't do much spine instrumentation anymore. Mm. Like trauma is the bulk of my thing. But I talked to plenty of spine surgeons who said my elective practice is 100% spine, but I still take trauma call and I'm right. still comfortable dealing with damage control orthopedics. And that really seemed to be the better fit. Hmm. And what probably sealed the deal was one of my biggest mentors is Bill Richardson. He's actually my senior partner who recruited me back. Right. He ended up going on a medical missions trip to Uganda. And in that we offered CME, we taught, well, he at the time taught spine surgery, and I just kind of was happy to come along right. and be participating. And I loved it. And mm. that whole experience really kind of cemented the concept of this is what I really want to do with the rest of my life. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. And I know I had another spine surgeon on the podcast, Dr. Serena Hu, and it was very cool talking to her about the pros and cons of spine surgery itself. And I would love to hear your response uh, to, I think, one of the biggest cons of spine surgery and that it's, it's a very something that it's high stakes in every case. You know, if you are a centimeter off in one direction, you know, someone might be paralyzed. And I think that my two questions, do you actually believe that spine surgery has more pressure in every case? And if so, how do you deal with that pressure? Great question. And uh, I think that from a large scale perspective, people would say every surgery is important because it affects your patient's function. Um, and as orthopedic surgeons, I would want to think that we all put pressure on ourselves to do our best no matter what surgery uh, you're doing. But most orthopedic uh, surgeons would agree that even within their subspecialty that you have simpler surgeries and more complex surgeries. Um, 
and when I was a resident, I was telling one of my attendings, I think I'm going to do spine. And uh, he was kind of joking around with me, but he very much whipped right back at me. And he was just like, yeah, you want to do spine? Like, what are you going to do the first time your patient's on the table and you lose all your signals? Right. Uh, and I was like, okay, that's very worst case scenario. <laughs> but, but the truth is that has happened. Right. Uh, and you have to be able to deal with those kind of complications or, you know, hiccups that happen in the OR and think through that and think under high pressure. Um, and so he brought up that interesting issues that some of our spine surgeries are very complicated and take several hours and have significant levels of complexity. And um, while you can make the argument that every surgery does that, no matter what field you're in, um, there is something to be said about going through the risks and benefits with your patients ahead of time. And mm -hmm. when I have a lot of patients ask me like, well, can I be paralyzed? And it's like, well, you know, like, obviously, technically you could, but these are the things we do to mitigate that. We use monitoring in the OR or we use navigation or, you know, you go to an experienced surgeon. And I don't know that every field has that process when they're going through the consent process. Mm -hmm. So I do think in some sense there are different stakes uh, in spine surgery. Um, your question about how do I deal with the pressure... Uh, again, leaning on my mentors, I think that the reality is everyone has some kind of complications at some point right. uh, during their careers. Um, and in the end, you can either choose to be really afraid when you operate and like think around every corner of like what's going to happen or you lean into the pressure uh, and you learn to hone your skills as a surgeon so that you can offer the very best to your patients. And then when something does happen, like a hiccup or a complication, uh, you know, the big things would be remain calm, stay focused, stay in control of the room. And this is where I really start to think through. There's a reason why everyone who works with me in the operating room knows that I'm very predictable as much as possible mm -hmm. so that I could minimize the room for error and that people know, okay, these are her algorithms and this right. is what she does when this happens. So we have the next instrument ready. Or I tell my fellows, like, know the steps. It's it, For the most part, it's not going to be a surprise. Mm -hmm. And when you know the steps and you're able to follow this, and those are the ways that I've kind of chosen to lean into the pressure uh, is to try to make things as predictable as possible. Hmm. I think some of that also comes to how do you deal with your complications? And I think one of the things I do to deal with the pressure is to lean on your successes mm -hmm. uh, and learn from your complications. And I remember after one of my recent complications, I was talking with Bill Richardson about it. And, you know, we thought back to early in practice and I was in private practice and I called him. And, you know, he had these words of encouragement and he was like, Melissa, I worry more about the pressure you put on yourself, but I'm assured because I know that you've already thought through what are all the things I could have done to avoid this right. and that you learn from this. He's like, I worry more about the dangerous surgeons who lack insight mm -hmm. and they never try to go back and do that. Um, and he was just like, you've chosen a specialty that's not for the weak of heart. And if you don't take care of these complicated patients, somebody else will. And right. I don't want somebody else who's dangerous doing that. Right. Uh, and that was really encouraging for me where I was like, huh, I never really thought of it that way. Yeah. And so. Oh, that's really nice. Oh, sweet words. <laughs> uh, amazing. So I would love to transition to uh, what I love about your story and that you're 
trying to earn your MBA currently. While you're an attending physician at Duke, you're also earning an MBA. So I would love to hear what your inspiration was for pursuing this. Sure. Um, five years ago, shortly after coming back on staff, my chair, Ben Allman, approached me and asked me to start running and directing the orthopedic surgery ORs. And so you're looking at anywhere from nine to 10 operating rooms each day that mm -hmm. are dedicated to orthopedic surgery and figuring out, you know, who needs more time, who needs less time, and how do we corral this? And at the time, I was surprised because the person who previously did that had been in practice for 15 years and he had been doing that job for 10 years. Oh, wow. And so I asked Ben, I was like, why are you asking me to do this? Uh, and he told me, he's like, I think that you're the right person for the job and that uh, you've got a strong enough personality that you'll be able to deal with difficult personalities when people push back on you. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay. And so I went with it. And within the first year, we were able to increase our utilization by 20% wow. and sustain that. And uh, it was to the point that other service lines like general surgery, they were just like, what, you know, why is their utilization so high and what are they doing? And the hospital ended up uh, collaborating with another company to look at how can we start capturing the data of how we utilize our operating room time and how do we allocate that because you know this is a significant source of revenue for the hospital mm -hmm. and we'd like to be more efficient with this and so I'd already been doing some work with our perioperative leadership group and what I found was I was doing a lot of this conferencing as we were bringing this company and implementing um, this concept across the board and they were starting to ask like well what are your algorithms how do you decide and what do you do and it hit me I was doing all of that just based on what made sense to me what if I actually got formal training mm -hmm. on how to maximize efficiency and how to look through different algorithms and that was really what inspired me to say I really want formal training on this mm -hmm. so that I can extrapolate that and really look at you know how can we improve healthcare, especially now that there's such a transition into value-based healthcare, we really need people at the table who understand and can straddle both the clinical side of what can we do that's best for the patients, and at the same time, understand the business side of, you know, how can we stay profitable? Mm -hmm. How can we increase our margins, but not sacrifice our quality? Right. Oh, so good. And I know that you, you know, we were talking earlier that you're in your super term as what they call it in your your final term of earning your MBA so I'm very excited once you get that degree in December how has the education that you received impacted your clinical practice thus far Anyone who knows me will tell you that words like efficiency are like near and dear to my heart like I love <laughs> them I'm like yes they get it you know um and what the Fuqua School of Business did was they really did a good job of offering real-time translation of these are the concepts mm -hmm. and let's have a discussion of how does this apply to your line of work and right. that collaborative effort because I'm doing the executive program so everyone else has they mostly have different jobs. And so listening to how those in healthcare versus those who are not in healthcare have applied the concepts. And, you know, here we did a case study 
that discussion has really helped of like, well, how do we implement that? Uh, and so how that's helped me clinically everywhere from looking at my individual clinic flow of like, well, what do we need to do to improve this so that uh, it helps with patient satisfaction? It helps with delivery of patient care for my individual patients mm-hmm. uh, so that my clinic's not running behind uh, to how that extrapolates in the OR of, you know, both my role within the orthopedic department, but then also to my role in the hospital. Um, clinically, my clinical practice has actually had to be cut down because I was recently promoted and congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, but you know, that was kind of a discussion that I had with the president of the hospital was, you know, you're going to have to give up some of your clinical time because we want you to take a bigger leadership role for the hospital. But what that's really afforded me to do was to focus on things that I thought were important. And then COVID hit. And if ever there was a test of like why it's important to have protected time to do that, that was it. And so in that, I had a seat at the leadership table to kind of decide, you know, how are we going to start deciding, you know, what cases we let go during COVID? Uh, When do we start, uh, you know, kind of opening that little it's almost like a spigot Mm -hmm. of how much surgery do we let proceed forward while we're dealing with people being out taking care of loved ones who have COVID versus they're sick versus adjusting for risk of exposure versus the PPE shortage um, and having that ability to make data-driven decisions uh, has been one of the biggest things. And then lastly, um, you know, Dean Bolding over at FUCO talked about this thing called DQ. You know, we have IQ, EQ, and then he introduced this concept of DQ, which is decency quotient. Hmm. And he was saying, you know, when you get your MBA, we really want you to think about how are you going to turn around and take this to apply and make things better, whether it's on a small scale in your life, in your work, in the world, whatever. But that's really kind of what they're charging. Uh, and so with COVID, I had the opportunity to collaborate. You know, we were just brainstorming, how do we deal with this PPE shortage? Mm-hmm. And at the time, like most of the country, people were like, we don't have enough N95 masks. Like all of our orders have been interrupted because we ordered most of that from China. And so I had the opportunity to collaborate with our School of Engineering. And so that really underscores, you know, that was collaboration. That was diversity. We were coming from different backgrounds uh, and we were all kind of trying to figure out like, what is this? And then decency, we all went into it eyes wide open of best case scenario, we're never going to use this innovation and we're just going to have it available in case we get to that point. Mm -hmm. Turns out we did end up using it. We ended up sharing it openly, but that was 100% things that I had learned at Fuqua. So I was grateful. I was like, hey, I'm really grateful for these opportunities uh, and 100% thankful that they kind of equipped me with that, even though I haven't even finished yet. Right. No, that's an amazing story. And I think what's funny is that we kind of say nonchalant that you're in business school right now. And I would love to hear like, how daunting was it to initially apply? Because I can imagine like as a resident right now, thinking of like doing business school, it's just like out, you know, even as a medical student, it's just, it's very daunting where someone might be passionate about it, but the thought process of how can I do this? What advice do you have for those who are maybe interested in pursuing an MBA, but they're just like, this might be too much for me? (laughs) 
I did a lot of homework. So I talked with people who had been through the program before and who were practicing clinicians. And I asked them, what was your process? Did you know right away that you were going to go to business school? And I think that garnering of information to make sure you make an informed decision is a great thing to do no matter what you're considering. You right. know, if you're considering a specific field, uh, where you want to live, where you want to do residency. It's the same process. Uh, and that's what I did with business school. I wanted to make sure, like, you know, what is the process? Uh, where should I look? And had also done some internal leadership development within Duke. And that's really what kind of got me interested as well of like, okay, these are the types of things we're going to be learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm interested in kind of diving deep on that. Um, and really the other thing that I would su suggest that people who are interested in that one of, um, Jennifer Perkins is an endocrinologist who recently actually left Duke, but I remember sitting down with her and asking her, you know, what was the, what was the process? And she said, you know, I really think that you have to look at it from a cost perspective. It's a cost both, you know, numbers wise, financially, it's going to cost money to go to business school. Mm -hmm. It's a cost time wise, you know, do you have the time to sacrifice to make sure that you can go into it? And she, uh, she actually was very transparent with me. And she's like, the last bit is it's a cost to whoever your support group is. Mm -hmm. So whether that's your family, your husband, your significant other, uh, your loved ones, right? Like, you really need to answer that question of, is that a cost that you want to take on? And is that a cost that they're going to support you in? And I, I was actually really grateful that she brought that up. I was like, not many people talk about that. Right. But that's a really important thing to process through. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I know that we talked a little bit about the COVID pandemic and how that affected you in your role in helping the ORs be as efficient as possible and trying to get PPE and such. And I think something that as you know, we think about graduate medical education, the COVID pandemic has really affected the fourth year medical students and you know, they are unable to do away rotations. They are now doing virtual interviews where both the medical students as well as residency programs were still trying to figure out, you know, the best way to do this. And I was hoping that you can talk about, you know, what steps your institution, Duke, has taken to try to figure out how we can best manage the situation. Great question. So first, I think that most universities are devoted and committed to education. And right. we understand that COVID isn't going to stop that. At the end of the day, we still are going to have to train our future surgeons and our future healthcare providers. Uh, at Duke, what we did was first, we looked at our internal medical students. And once we realized we are caught up on PPE, we need to start making sure that everyone hits their requirements to graduate it became a, okay, we're going to do this in a controlled environment to make sure that we're not depleting our sources of PPE, but that we're also intentional about who we let into the operating room. And then we, so our rotating students started coming back for internal students at Duke to make sure that they hit those graduation requirements. Mm -hmm. For our external rotators, when they decided, hey, we're not taking external rotators, and I think that this has become a, you know, national thing. Right. 
um, that we said, well, we really don't want to ruin this for them because we want, it's important. Residency is a five-year commitment and it's very important that you are able to make that decision with as much information as possible because mm-hmm. you're going to be living someplace for five years and you're going to be part of a bigger program for five years. Uh, so Duke took everyone who was supposed to be an external rotator and actually now they're doing all the virtual conferences mm-hmm. and our chairman actually has individual conference with everyone who's supposed to be on rotation uh, once a week where, you know, it's a didactic conference and he interfaces with those external rotators as well as our current rotators. Right. Uh, so that's something. And then they're also doing our subspecialty conferences. We've done some virtual Q&A sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our residents actually took charge and created this amazing video with the other residents in our communications department uh, to really showcase, you know, this is what Duke Ortho is about and looks at the different sites and the local community, interviews various residents. And, I, you know, I watched the video and it was actually a really good thing because it captivates, you know, this is how our residents interact with each other, mm-hmm. not just while they're at work, but also outside of work. And I think that those are all things that we're trying to do. We've started to push our comfort zone in terms of social media, uh, as opposed to just saying, hey, come to our website and check out our website. Mm -hmm. It's definitely on there, but trying to push out beyond that and say, hey, um, this is what we're doing, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, uh, you know, Twitter, these are all things that we've probably dabbled in a little bit, but we're probably leaning on more heavenly, Mm -hmm. heavenly. Leaning, leaning on more heavily. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's such a like uncharted waters right now. And I think like every program in the country is trying to figure out how we can best, um, you know, attract students and uh, allow them to see who programs are. And, um, what advice do you have for students who are in this process, especially some of the folks who haven't you know, had the chance to rotate. You know, I'm I'm here at Yale and I actually never rotated here, but I remember my interview and I absolutely loved the residents and I loved that dinner before the interviews because it was mm-hmm. just, you got to see that they were a family, you know? And so what advice do you have for students who are in this process? I would encourage students to continue to ask questions from your peers. Um, ask questions from your home institution, lean on your alumni, people who have come through and gone into the same field, reach out to them. uh, Because most often alumni are very transparent. They'll give you that inside scoop of the program that they ended up going to. It's really a time that the opportunity to network and ask those kinds of questions mm-hmm. is huge because that's where you get those informal details and right. the sense of, is this a fit? Because uh, anyone can access what's publicly available on websites of, you know, these are how many cases you do, but it's those intangibles that you're talking about, mm-hmm. right? The fit that you have with the rest of the program. Uh, what do you do during your time off? How close are you with your current classmates? Um, those are important questions because those people are going to be your support network while you're going through a pretty trying time of during residency, you work hard uh, and that's going to continue with COVID or without COVID. Right. So um, I I think that those are important things, attending those virtual Q&A sessions, not being afraid to ask those questions, and then also paying attention. You know, our most recent Q&A session was on Sunday night, 
Uh, and the chat box on that Zoom session was actually really entertaining because uh, the residents and attendings were definitely, you know, going back and forth. And, uh, you know, the residents were giving me a hard time because I was on vacation and I was still <laughs> on this Zoom session. Uh, and there was a part of me that wondered, like, gosh, you know, I hope these students don't interpret this as, like, Duke is a bunch of really unprofessional people. Right. Uh, and instead see, like, you know, we're actually, we have good relationships mm-hmm. between the attendings and the residents. Um, so being able to pay attention to those little interactions uh, I think would be helpful in picking up on those cues. Right. No, so good. Um, what's funny is I think the the middle child, if you will, of this process are the MS1, 2s, and 3s. And I think I personally have been so focused on the fourth years and so worried about how they're going through this process that I also forgot about the fact that there are students who you know, are trying to get interested in orthopedics and they're not able to do their clinical rotations or there are first and second year students who are not going to be able to shadow and whatnot. And so I was wondering like what your thoughts are for like the third years who their clinical rotation schedule is all messed up or the first and second years who don't have the shadowing opportunities like they normally would. It's tough. It's definitely tough. And I want to acknowledge that because I think back to my own situation and had I not been able to come to the OR, that would have been an opportunity that would have been hugely missed. Um, I do think that reaching out to your local orthopedic uh, interest group would be a starting point and seeing if your medical school has one of those, Mm -hmm. Uh, seeing if you can hop on to the virtual sessions at your home institution or outside institution. Um, I've had, I, I know this, this is interesting, but I've had people reach out to me and I'm sure you're getting this with the podcast, uh, that people are reaching out and asking, like, can I just pick your brain and ask you questions? And I'm more than happy to do that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, really in the midst of COVID where you can't have those face-to-face interactions, uh, taking that. And for some people, it may be more challenging if you're introverted, but really taking that opportunity and saying, I'm going to shoot the email or I'm going to reach out or I'm going to direct message them and say, Hey, can I just reach out and ask you a couple questions? Uh, would you mind? And 90% of the time, or if not more, I would hope more that when you do that to an orthopedic surgeon, the answer is, yeah, definitely. I'll make the time, you know, and I've given out my contact information Mm -hmm. and said, sure, give me a call. I'm happy to talk through that type of stuff. Um, but it is really leaning on the non-traditional ways, but, you know, in the end, I think they prompt these kind of conversations earlier. Right. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, no. And I, I do think that, you know, as you had said, like with the podcast, people have been emailing me and I think some of the, some of the things that I've been trying to tell medical students is, you know, to put a sports metaphor out there in typical orthopod fashion is you're going to miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, you know? And so if if you never send that email, you're never going to get that initiative uh, forward. And I think that, you know, worst case scenario, they don't reply. And that's probably not someone who you want to work with, you know? And so I think that it's just, just send the email, just send it and you'll be fine. Um, Dr. Erickson, I know that we've talked a lot about what you've done and your past, as well as what you're currently working on. And I would love to hear the future and what it is that your future goals and projects are moving forward. Sure. Um, 
I, I, I do think that life can be challenging. I had shared that um, I went into medical school with children. Right. And uh, life just gets busy. Mm-hmm. And I was joking around with somebody recently, and I was saying, you know, this whole you can have it all thing is just really tough to buy into. Yes. And my mentor, Bill Richardson, had told me, he's like, you know, being a triple threat, that's probably those days are really difficult to be like a good bench researcher, a good clinician and a good educator. Uh, and he, he told me, he's like, you know, Duke will never stop you from overworking yourself. Mm-hmm. So you have to proactively choose what are the things you want to be good at? Right. He's like, I think realistically you could be good at two out of the three of those, but that concept of choosing what do you want to be good at uh, is something that I've really taken with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's changed in different seasons of my life. And, um, now I'm an empty nester. So my kids are all in college. Aww. So that was that transition to, okay, I'm ready for business school. Right. Um, my next thing that I'd like to work on is becoming more active on some of the national circuits. Um, and these, uh, hold on. Can you hear my dog or no? Sorry. Uh, I cannot, but it's okay. okay. It's, I, what's funny is my, so my mom is actually taking my puppy for a walk right now because she, what she's in this habit right now of where her, the ball gets under the couch. She's now big enough such that she can't get under the couch. And so to let you know that her ball is under the couch and she wants you to get it, she'll do it with just one bark, just just one little bark being like, my ball's there. <laughs> You're just like, oh my God. So she like, she's a really good puppy, but like, yeah, so my mom's taking my puppy out for a walk. So. Gotcha. I'm so, like, I tried to pick like a quiet thing I and I just heard the dog in the background and I'm like, oh, I really, okay. Um, so just to recap, so, you know, my next thing in terms of what I'd like to do moving forward is become more involved in societies. I think that knowing when my children were home and staying involved and wanting to not completely, you know, step away from involvement with my family, Mm -hmm. I was very intentional about when I was asked to do something, um, with the Academy or with Ruth Jackson, Mm -hmm. uh, that I would, you know, be honored that somebody asked me, but I would be realistic of, do I have the time to contribute to that now? Um, And the Academy actually put out an article once that talked about, you know, there is power and there's wisdom and the ability to say no. Uh, And so I'm now revisiting those things and saying, okay, what are the things I want to say yes to? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, Lisa Canada, um, who I think has been mentioned on your podcast before, um, you know, she asked me recently, like, hey, I want you to be involved on the diversity task force. Mm -hmm. And this was something that I was like, this is great timing. That's something that I would, you know, one, I'm honored that you asked me. And two, I'm passionate about that. Mm -hmm. And three, I actually have the time to devote to this so that I could do something and do it well because the last thing I want to do is say yes I want to do this but I don't have time to write the articles right. or to make the meetings um, so I think that's a very intentional shift that I'm looking to start to become more involved with national societies than I have been in the past awesome Dr. Arison, I've loved our conversation and I'm so excited that you were able to speak with me today. And I would like to transition to our final segment that is the final five, which are five questions that I ask every single surgeon that comes on the show. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So my 
absolutely, my, my absolute favorite procedure would be an anterior cervical discectomy infusion. Mm. Um, and the reason why is, uh, and I, I know that I'm not alone. I have several partners and friends who didn't go into orthopedic or into spine surgery. Mm-hmm. I also have residents who like you hear them talk about ACDFs and they're just like, Oh, that's such a great surgery. Like it's so pretty. Right. Um, and it's just, I think it's great in terms of being able to restore function. You have patients who, uh, using their upper extremities, if they have a really painful radiculopathy where, you know, it's pain, just impairing their function in their arm or their hands, or if they have cervical myelopathy, that you can really make a huge difference. And technically the surgery is just, it teaches you so much about dissecting, Mm -hmm. working under the microscope. uh, And when you see just that pressure on the spinal cord or the nerve root kind of relieved, it's you know, magnified under the microscope and it looks beautiful. And the residents really appreciate that, you know, one-on-one teaching of like, well, why don't you dissect like this? Or Mm -hmm. it's a really nice surgery to be able to take somebody through and be able to uh, feel like you're a part of as a resident, because, you know, when you're working, you see where your hands are and what you're sucking with. And it's a nice, you know, quick surgery for the most part. Um, that even the residents who don't go into spine, when they give lectures, they're like, oh, ACDFs are such a great surgery. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I <my> know. <laughs> they're That's one awesome. of my faves. Oh, so good. My second final five question, what are your go-to topics for Grand Round presentations? So um, the Grand Round presentation that I probably get tasked with the most and that I have the most fun giving would be something I call potpourri. And uh, this kind of goes back to didactic uh, where it's, I put up imaging and it's calling residents out in a, in the Socratic way, not the like, hey, I'm pimping you and I'm trying to shame mm-hmm. you or anything, but it's talk me through how you read this. And we, a lot of times we'll just pull up our pack system mm-hmm. and, you know, start scrolling through it. And it's didactics and we're kind of doing a hodgepodge of everything of talk through how would you manage this imaging? So it could be straight trauma. It could be, you know, frequent finds. These are frequently tested mm-hmm. on the OITE versus, you know, these are your telltale rheumatoid things and really collaborating and finding, okay, these are the radiographic images. Why do we think through this? What are you looking for? How are you going to treat? And so I call it potpourri because it's a little bit of everything. So it's not just one thing, but it's very much that interactive and that thought process with the residents of why would you do that? Do you agree with them? Phone a friend. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Like, what are the things you want to be thinking through of how you manage a spinal cord injury? You know, this is what showed up. It's clearly malreduced. Uh, And that's actually one of the most fun because the residents get involved I get to listen to what their thought process is. I get to listen to them teach the junior residents. Uh, And the med students who are watching are oftentimes like, wow, like they're actually having to process through this. And this isn't a, okay, this is the next PowerPoint and these are the papers that support this. Mm -hmm. And instead it's the residents saying like, well, you know, according to this, and this is like the algorithm of why we do it that way. Right. Um, So it really kind of brings in that circle of education of like you teach, but then you teach somebody else. True. So. Nice. Nice. Um, this is always the toughest question. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? So I have two. Um, 
my favorite stories are both from when I was a resident mm-hmm. and one would be uh, when I was a chief resident I, uh, at Duke, we have a mentorship model with our chiefs and our interns. Mm -hmm. And so for your six weeks on your trauma consult, you're assigned as an intern to one chief resident. And that chief resident is in charge of kind of going to every consult with you and teaching you, you know, how to splint, Mm -hmm. how to reduce, et cetera. And so mine was actually one of my partners is Dr. Nora Foster. And she was the intern assigned to me. And we had been going through consults in the emergency department, et cetera. And, um, it, you know, we had this knee dislocation come into the trauma bay mm. and it was this like, okay, are you ready? You're going to do this reduction. And she was like, yeah. And of course it's the trauma bay. It's a trauma, it's a polytrauma. And so we had it, what felt like at the time, every ER resident, <laughs> a bunch of medical right, students, right. the ER attending. And then it's like me and Nora Foster. And there's this patient with this like horribly dislocated knee. And I was like, all right, do you feel comfortable? Like I'll assist and you've got this reduction. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I got it. And I was like, all right. Mm -hmm. And so we did it and it made the loudest reduction. Like everyone in that bay heard it. And like, everyone was like, that was awesome. And it was, it was just so great to celebrate with her Mm -hmm. to be like, you got this, you nailed it. Like a boss, you got it. And you know, she's just as short as I am. So you can imagine like two rather short women going in (laughs) and just nailing this reduction in front of an audience. It's like, just, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's one of my favorite memories, especially because it was somebody who's now my partner, Mm -hmm. who's another female in orthopedics where, you know, we continue to be the minority in the field, et cetera. And she's a female spine surgeon where there's even few women in that field. Um, So good. (laughs) So good. My, my second favorite memory would be uh, along that same vein, right? You know, I am a five foot two petite woman. And I remember as a fourth year being like the chief on at the VA. Mm-hmm. And one of my second year residents who was like, a, you know, your traditional six footer male, like athletic build, uh, he had a hip dislocation in the emergency department. And uh, he's like, I can't get it in. Like, we're going to have to take it to the OR. And I was like, are you sure? Pause. (laughs) Pause. (laughs) Let's, let's verify this information. And so I came (laughs) down to the ER. And so, you know, we coordinated with the attending on Mm -hmm. to make sure we had conscious sedation. And so, you know, he hops up on the table and he's trying and he's tugging and, you know, tugging. And I was just like, I really don't think this patient is relaxed enough. And, you know, as you know, when you're doing a hip reduction, the two most important things are, you, you know, you're, sedation the patient has to be adequately sedated but then two it's how you're you know what is the moment arm of what you're levering Mm -hmm. right and so he was up there and he was just kind of like using all six foot like however much he weighed strength to just kind of like pull but he really wasn't using the right moment arm and I was trying to tell him and he was getting frustrated like he's like I am I'm doing it and I'm I'm sitting there watching him like holding the hip down being like you're not doing it (laughs) And so after he tried like twice, um, you know, I asked the attending, I'm like, hey, can you push more sedation? They push more sedation. He's still not getting the moment arm. And like, clearly, like, he's not like processing, you know, right. he's getting frustrated. And so I just asked him, I'm like, 
do you mind if I just get up there? And he kind of gave me this look like, oh yeah, sure. Like this should be great. Go right ahead. You get up there and try. (laughs) And I was like, okay, you know, and I wasn't trying to like emasculate him or anything. I was just kind of like, hey, you know, like worst comes to worst, we'll take him to the OR, but like, just let me give it one shot. And he was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And like, he steps back, he starts holding the PSIS down, and I hop up on the table. And like, sure enough, clunk, it gets him. Like, all I do is like, pull across the body. Right. And he was just like, he's laughing. We were good friends. So he wasn't like upset. Right. He was like, of course, (laughs) like, of course you get it in. Oh my God. And I was like, Yeah. Because I understand the concept of reduction, yes. and this is what I was trying to teach you. Like I was trying to teach you to like bring the hip across, lever right. it over, and then get the reduction. And he was like, "Okay, point made. <laughs> well done. Yes, I understand now. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And I think that that speaks so true to what just a lot of the perception of why women can't go into ortho is like the need for physical strength and all these sorts of things, and especially like reductions. And I think that. A lot of the folks, like when you learn how to do reductions from your male colleagues, they do it this like they're just trying to muscle it in when in reality it's like, you know, you use ligamentum taxis, you hang the arm for a long time and just like you think about what needs to be done rather than just like trying to muscle it. And it's, <laughs> it's so true how I think that's one of the biggest perceptions I think that female medical students have about the field of uh, orthopedics and such. Agreed. So true. Um, I know that we've talked a lot about medicine and the operating room, but what are some of your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Sure. Um, So some of my favorite things to do when I'm not at work would be spending time with my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's become particularly challenging now as empty nesters because everyone gets busy. So we've got some in college, we've got some who are working and out of college and who are now married. Uh, So regrouping and that's part of what vacation was. We went to the beach and, you know, kind of rented a beach house, got everyone together. So spending time with family continues to be a pastime Mm -hmm. of mine. Uh, we tend to do a lot of outdoor stuff. So whether it's hiking, uh, clay shooting, love doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, and also just fitness in general. So if I'm not spending time with my family as a group, then, you know, I really like traveling and hiking through Italy. Like can't wait for COVID to be over so I could do things like that and Mm -hmm. explore other countries, uh, you know, and hike and just appreciate culture And so while I can't do that, I continue to do like my baseline go-tos is just clear my head, go for a jog. Um, So I just love being outdoors. And that's part of the draw of what's kept me down south is Mm. I love being able to be outdoors year round. Yeah. So good. Awesome. My last question for you, Dr. Erickson, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Um, my best advice would be, uh, find, find your people. Mm. And I think that that's not just find your people as like, you know, your group of orthopedic surgeon, but you probably need a handful of people in your life who are going to be really raw and honest with you and challenge you. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that I go to when I've had a really tough day in the OR or when, you know, everyone has a moment of, 
personal wins or personal failures. And those are the people that you can go to and say, hey, I did this. And they're going to understand like that specific significance of like, hey, I I understand what it means that you banged out four cases and like help somebody else that that's meaningful to them, Mm -hmm. that they can celebrate with you. Uh, And not that like people like I have a great supportive husband. I still share that with him. Uh, But there is that added empathy that somebody who is, you know, honest and your go-to like, hey, I get what that means to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they can help celebrate with you as opposed to, you know, somebody's thinking like, oh, she's just bragging or, you know, whatnot. So they, they understand the nuances of those personal wins. But the flip side of that is they understand the nuances of those individual failures of like, I had this really bad complication and I'm struggling through this. Mm -hmm. Like my personal mentor has been able to really come to me and put that in perspective and say, you know, this is what we thought through. This is what I think could have been better. And sometimes that's hard to hear, right? Like when we go to morbidity and mortality conference, like having those cases put up and having people kind of say like, well, why didn't you do this? It's so much more helpful to process through that individually with someone and to take that feedback. And it still doesn't feel great to know that like, hey, I missed something or I could have done this. Mm-hmm. But having that one-on-one feedback and know that that's being done of I'm giving you this feedback because I want you to be better. Right is worth its weight in gold. And that helps you then go to the morbidity and mortality conference and be ready of like, yeah, I'm taking ownership of this could have been done better. Mm -hmm. This is what I've learned. And, you know, we missed that opportunity, but we're going to be better because of this. And we're sharing it with the department so that the entire department is aware of this is how we're handling it. We're not hiding it. We're making everyone better so that everyone can learn from this. And I think it's important that you have to identify those people and seek those people out mm-hmm. and then lean on them when you're moving forward because it's it's not an easy field. And whether it's a technical issue that you're dealing with about being a surgeon versus a personal issue of like, I've got this crisis in my life and I just need a sounding board, right. like having those people in your life is monumental. Awesome. Dr. Erickson, thank you so much for taking the time out of your vacation to speak with us today. I sincerely and sincerely appreciate it, and I really wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Melissa Erickson. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanny Kirk, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.